Come on. Welcome to Money Savage, Savage Approach Personal Finance. This is George Grombacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, strong and powerful Dr. Daniel Crosby. Daniel, are you ready to do this? I'm ready, man. Excellent. Let's do this. Daniel is a PhD, psychologist, and behavioral finance expert. He is the chief behavioral officer at Brinker Capital, and he is recently turned 40 years old. So I wanted to talk to you about that, Daniel, but I'm excited to have you on Tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. So, first off, I'm not 40 till October, so do not age me oh, into oh, that sorry. cohort prematurely. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm get, I'm pushing 40, but I'm not quite there yet. I see. Okay. So I, uh, <laughs> so my personal life, uh, my personal life is the the most important part of my life. I'm a husband and a father of three young children. I got an eight year old, a five year old, and a two year old. Nice. Uh, and then we're, you know, we're tapped out. That's good for me. Um, yeah, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, grew up in Alabama, love uh, the American South and yeah, just, uh, love, love what I do. Perfect. 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 Well, I, uh, I should have read that a little bit closer. I did not mean to cheat you out of another nine months of your thirties. Nine good months. So, yeah. yeah nine you, good months. you hold on as tight as you can. I, I just turned 40 in October, so I thought I was going to be able to commiserate, but I'll have to wait a couple of months until we can make that happen. So, I feel I feel eighty if it makes you feel any better. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely does. No, it doesn't at all. So, okay, so behavioral finance is a, is a pretty specific field. What uh, what what you, what what drew you to it? So my dad is a financial advisor, so I grew up in this really unique home. I think in America, a lot of uh, families are loath to talk about personal finance and investing, uh, but I grew up in a family where that was very much discussed. Uh, and so I, you know, every kid tries to be a little different, perhaps doesn't want to do what their parents did. So I went into college saying, you know, I'm going to be a little different than my dad and decided to study psychology. Uh, but as I got exposed to different fields, I kept falling in love with non-clinical applications of psychology, basically not, you know, helping sick people to get better, uh, but to help, you know, high-functioning people be be great leaders and, and great individuals and great investors. And so I got exposed to this, uh, this field of behavioral economics and behavioral finance, and I think uh, primed as I was by my early experiences – uh, with my dad and growing up in my house, it just it just took fire in me. And so, yeah, it, it is very specific. Uh, but I think it's a, a combination of my love of psychology and just thinking deeply about why people do the things that they do. Uh, and then that those those formative uh, growing up years with in my parents house. Got it. Well, I appreciate that. So you've been at it for for a little while now. Do you feel like you figured it out? No, that's uh, that's one of the things that I love. That's one of the things that I love about uh, studying human behavior is you you never get very good at it. Like I think I would be bored uh, at a job where you know you could you could master it and spend the next thirty years just sort of executing on your mastery. Uh, the good and the bad news about being a student of human behavior is you. Uh, the good news is you've always got something new to learn. The bad news is you never quite figure it out. So that's a that's a feature and not a bug for me, though. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. So I I read on some of your writings. You talked about how wealth, truly considered, has at least as much to do with psych- psychological uh, factors as it does um, your financial well being. 
Talk to me a little bit about that. So I think something that I didn't appreciate, certainly, and I think something that most folks don't appreciate is the degree to which uh, human behavior and psychology enters into the world of investing in personal finance. And so I love to give the example that I that I cited in my my two books ago, The Laws of Wealth. I, I said uh, I gave the example of the highest performing mutual fund of the 2000s, so from 2000 to 2010. Uh, the highest performing mutual fund got 18 and a half percent per year, which is, you know, enormous, incredible performance. Right. Uh, and the average investor in that fund had a realized loss of 11 percent per year uh, because what would happen is the fund would run up. It would get in the news. People would get excited. They'd pile in. It would have a period of poor performance. People would jump out, think it was a bad idea, sort of rinse and repeat. And so we see that even if, you know, even if we could pick the best mutual fund managers in the world, even if we could pick the Warren Buffetts, you know, uh, before we knew they were going to be the Warren Buffetts, our ability to profit from that is only as good as our ability to take the ride. And so that's what all my writing and speaking and consulting is around is helping people to take that ride. Got it. One of my favorite movies is uh, is Clerks, and there's this great scene. If you've not seen Clerks, it says, this job would be great if it wasn't for the people. So, And we'd be great investors if it wasn't for our brains. So That's right, if not for the people. <laughs> so your, your newest book, um, The Behavioral Investor, that's correct? That's correct. Um, it's broken into three different parts, and the first part deals with the sociological, neurological, and physiological impediments to making good investment decisions. Would love to get just walk us through that. Yeah. So um, the the high level thesis there is that things that have served us well evolutionarily. Uh, serve us poorly in modern investment contexts. So you look at, uh, you know, back, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, there used to be uh, numerous humanoid species. You know, we weren't the only uh, only humanoids on the block. And the reason that we uh, are still around while the others are dead, you know, Neanderthals, uh, and these others are dead is because we were more scared effectively. You know, the, the best research says that the reason that we survived is we were more loss averse and we were more risk averse. And so when things started to get dicey, uh, we either picked up and moved or we took shelter. We did what we needed to do to survive. And so evolutionarily that, uh, that helped, right? Like we outlasted the other human species uh, but it doesn't serve us well in modern financial context because we know that we're living longer than ever. We have to take risk with our money if we're going to keep up with inflation and secure for ourselves any kind of retirement. So, you know, a big, a big, big conversation piece in, the, in those early chapters of the book is just giving examples of things that have served us well as a, as a species that are just misapplied. It's not irrational per se. It's just, you know, we're, we're applying it in the wrong context, I think. Right. So the instincts to run out of a burning building are the same ones that tell us to sell an investment when it does have that 10 or 15% drop, even though it maybe isn't the best decision. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. You see all these articles about, you know, You'd have this much money if you had bought Amazon on the day that it IPO'd or Apple or whatever the whatever the stock is. 
but what they don't show is, I mean, Amazon lost more than 90% of its value, you know, during the tech bubble. And most people can't sort of dispassionately take that ride and go, oh, I still believe in this. I'm going to watch my $100,000, you know, go to go to $6,000 and be totally cool with that. Um, so yeah, it's it's really about helping people understand that the things that have served them well historically may be uh, getting them sideways in markets and helping to educate them to be students of history uh, so that they know better what to expect because markets are much more volatile than I think most people realize. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt about that. I think that that's right. So the second part of the book focuses on the four primary psychological tendencies that impact investment behavior and that those drive most behaviors. The fact that human beings are very intricate, that our brains are incredible, it does kind of boil down to four things. So I'd love to hear about those. Yeah, so the, the four things that I talk about there are ego, emotion, attention, and conservatism. So to, to take them sort of one by one, ego is our tendency to be overconfident. So, you know, each one of us, has this sort of uh, emotional buffer that's our that's our overconfidence or our ego uh, that says, yeah, like I'm a little I'm a little luckier than average. I'm a little better looking than average. I'm a little smarter than average. Uh, and this has a profound positive effect on our on our lives because it makes us resilient to setbacks. It means that when you you know when our girlfriend dumps us, we you know, are right back at the bar the next night, right? You know, trying right. to make it, trying to make it happen again. When our small business fails, we pick ourselves up, uh, and and all of this we do because we're overconfident. So it's a lovely, once again, like it's a lovely adaptation. Ninety nine percent of the places it's applied, uh, but when we bring it to the world of investing, it means that you know we have overly concentrated positions. We don't diversify. We think we know the future. We, you know, we do we do all sorts of boneheaded things. So that's that ego piece. Um, the second is emotion. Uh, there's a ton of great literature that I cite in the book that basically talks about how uh, emotionless investors are the best investors. Um, there's actually a study in the book that's fascinating that compares people who have the emotional centers of their brain damaged, people who basically uh, can't form strong emotions. And compares them on a number of tasks versus neurotypical people, people whose brains have not been damaged. And what they find is these people with the brain damage can't do a variety of routine tasks. So they can't, you know, pick out which clothes to wear, which flavor of ice cream to have, uh, because all of these are emotional decisions. All of these have an emotional substrate to them. Uh, and that's something that I think people don't commonly realize. But what these people with brain damage are great at is gambling and investing uh, because they make uh, probabilistically minded decisions that aren't – they don't get their feelings hurt. You know, when, when their Amazon stock drops 90 percent, they just keep on keeping on because uh, they're not upset about it. They just play the probabilities. Right. Uh, and so they can't do basic things, but they can be great investors. And so I talk about you know, a lot of the science around ridding – uh, taking, squeezing emotion out of decision-making processes with money. Uh, the next one is attention, which is around our uh, tendency to confuse the vividness of, of, of a scenario with the likelihood of it. So if you think about, uh, you know, the vividness, the memorability of something like a, a great recession from 10 years ago, 
Uh, that's highly, highly vivid. You know, everyone remembers when that happened and the pain around that if you lived through it. Um, but it's not all that likely. I mean, that was the second worst uh, catastrophe in, in, in U.S. financial history. It's not all that probable. It's not all that likely, but it's very, very vivid. And so basically what you see is, is since then, people trying to time every little zig and zag of the market, everyone's sort of hyper alert uh, for this next big crash. And it leads us to sort of fight the last war. It leads us to look, uh, you know, to, to see shadows everywhere and, and make poor decisions as a result. And then finally is conservatism, uh, which is our tendency as a human species to prefer the status quo and to prefer what we know and to confuse what we know with being uh, desirable, right? What is desirable or what is risk-free? And so the easiest example of how this plays out is that people tend to overinvest in the in the stocks of their home country. So uh, in America, it's not as a big deal as uh, a big a deal as as it is in the rest of the world because we have a large economy. It's still a problem. Uh, but you look at these small countries, you know, uh, small countries in Latin America that might only account for one percent or half a percent of of global GDP, and the people in that country have ninety percent of their wealth in the stocks of that country. And it's because they've confused what they know with what is desirable. Got it. Well, I can certainly see why it is that that you focus on these four, because I can definitely see myself certainly in all of them, and I can see clients in all of these as well. So as to the whole ego piece, I guess it'd be better be better served to ask my wife which, on, which ones of these I really, really suffer from. I definitely think I'm a better driver than most people, but the rest of them I'm not sure of. So... And from an emotional standpoint, I think that we all get hurt feelings. Um, and then from a conservatism standpoint, most definitely, would also um, that 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 home country bias I think is a real thing. Would it also be when people fall victim to just to use a terrible example of people that worked at Enron having a lot of their investments, a lot of their four hundred one k assets in, in in Enron stock. Yeah, so we see that uh, all the time here in Atlanta. This is, you know, home to a number of large Fortune 500 companies, and so you'll see people, I'll see clients, and they'll have, you know, millions of dollars and 90% of it in UPS stock or Coke stock, and it's just, it's terrifying to me. Uh, and it's this, it's partially conservatism, right? It's partially like, hey, I work at Coke, so I know what's going on there, so I'm gonna play it safe by putting all my money there. Well, you know, actually, this is super, super dangerous because, first of all, if you work for a company the size of Coke, unless you're the CEO, like you don't have you don't have a whole heck of a lot to do with the, right. the future direction of the company. But then also, let's say you live in Atlanta, you work at Coke and, you know, a bulk of your wealth is in, in Coke stock. You got to think your local the, the home you live in is profoundly impacted by the fortunes of Coke. You know, your job is profoundly affected by the fortunes of Coke, and now you're going to put your your accumulated wealth uh, on the fortunes of Coke as well. So it's it's a very, very risky thing to do uh, when, in fact, people think of it as the safest thing to do. It's a great example. Yeah, I think that's that's extremely interesting. And then you educate them or you just say, hey, have you really considered all those different elements that you just laid out, if something goes sideways with Coca-Cola, it's going to impact every aspect of your life. Now, do the other three um, drivers play into still not changing their mind about that? I guess that, that sort of depends on the individual. But all well, right. I, I, 
Please. I've, I've, I found it. Um, I found it very difficult to talk people out of these concentrated stock positions just because they are emotional about them. You know, mm -hmm. in many cases, this is a con a company that's been good to them, that's helped them make their fortune, and uh, yeah, they they feel like they're betraying and an, a loyalty if they sell their stock. Yeah. They probably tell you, you know, Daniel, I, 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 I get it that it intellectually makes sense, but I'm not going to do anything about it. So exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. All right. So the third part of the book. So what? <laughs> so, uh, this is a, a little bit of a, a joke on myself, right? <laughs> um, I, I found a copy of my first ever public presentation to a group of advisors and it was a 45 minute presentation and it was 75 slides and so nice. um, <laughs> yeah, not not a best practice <laughs> and so and so one of the things that i've learned over you know a decade of speaking to crowds is that people you know people want the the so what and so you know you can read a book that's all about how your cave you know your caveman ancestors you know impacted the way that you think about money today and you can read about all these biases. Uh, but I wanted to really break it down at the end of each chapter and talk about the, you know, the so what of it. Like, so, you know, what is this, what does this look like uh, for you as an investor? So that's all that was just trying to, trying to be as practical as possible, which is nothing I'm, uh, nothing I do naturally, but I wanted to kind of force myself to do it. I appreciate that very much. You know, I think that, that that's something that we all want, that's something that we all want. I think we all appreciate um, the theoretical and there's probably a lot of uh, amateur psychologists out there and a lot of people that really enjoy trying to figure out the human condition. Um, but how does it really manifest itself and, 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 and how can I take steps to actually avoid these behaviors if at all possible? So I appreciate yeah. that very much. Well, Daniel, Savage Nation is ready for your difference making tip. What do you have for them? So I think the difference-making tip, the very first step on the journey towards becoming a behavioral investor is realizing that you are just as dumb and irrational and susceptible <laughs> and susceptible to bias as the next person and, and owning that, like truly owning it. Uh, because I find that when I used to read books about uh, behavioral finance or, you know, behavioral economics, I would read these and go, you know, oh, I... I know someone who's totally like that or like, yeah, that's that's totally my neighbor or my dad or, you know, whatever. Um, and I think what you have to do when you read books like mine is to to look to turn that light, uh, bright light of introspection in on yourself, first of all, and, and own that you are just as fallible as the next person. And if you can do that and really mean it, you'll be on your way. I think that that is great stuff that definitely gets come on. Come on. And yes, fundamentally, we are all cavemen and cave women at some level. So <laughs> it is hardwired into our DNA. So I appreciate that. Well, yeah. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? Where can they get a copy of your book? So run to Amazon to pick up a copy of The Behavioral Investor or The Laws of Wealth. And I'm very active on LinkedIn, Daniel Crosby, PhD, or you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel Crosby. Excellent. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Daniel your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Follow him on LinkedIn as well as Twitter, and I will list um, in the show in the notes of the show where you can get a copy of both his books. Thank you again, Daniel. Thank you. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together.
What's up, Savage Nation? Please support the show by subscribing, leave us a review, and definitely feel free to share us with somebody you think would like it. Come on!